Would you turn in your Bibles this evening to Genesis chapter 45 with me? Genesis chapter 45. When I look through some of these sections of Scripture, particularly in Genesis, I often think, if I were writing this narrative, how would I write this? Um, I mean, if you were in charge of writing the story and your goal was to preserve a nation, how would you do that? You, you know, if it's going to be in a specific land, you would think, at least I would, that, that you keep the people in the land that was going to be this prosperous nation. But that's not how God writes a story. That's not how God plans it. And that's because, obviously, God's ways are not our ways. He often designs things like we wouldn't. And He many times designs them like we would never even expect. And many times He doesn't tell us what He's doing. We don't know what He's doing sometimes until the end of this event or maybe not until eternity. And I think He does this in order to keep us dependent upon Him, to keep us trusting in Him for His grace even despite our unanswered questions. I mean, try to put yourself in Israel's sandals at this time. They are far away from this place that God has promised them. And so what are you doing, God? When are you going to bring us back? Why would you send us to Egypt? That's what's really happening here. Jacob has to make a choice. Am I going to go to Egypt away from this land of promise? I mean, God promised this to my grandfather, Abraham, and and that promise was passed down to me, and now I'm being pulled away from that promise. I'm going to a land that is foreign. And that doesn't seem very intuitive to us at times. We may think, you know, I'd be happy to put my complete faith in God if he answered all of my questions first. I'd be happy to trust him and do what he wants me to do if he just told me a few more things. But that's not faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The the idea there is that it's the assurance of things that we don't yet have and that we many times don't fully understand. And we don't see how we can have them in many cases. And so we just simply have to take the ne- next step without seeing all that's going to unfold in our future. We just take one step at a time and, and trust God. And that's what God wants. God wants us to, reserve, to trust Him unreservedly. That is, without reservation, without holding anything back. We simply just trust Him fully. God, Your Word is best, and so I'm going to do it. And so what he does in order to make that happen in our lives, to to bring our will in, in compatibility with his desires, is he often orchestrates the events of our lives to bring about change in us so that we will continually lean on him. And sometimes, or should I say many times, that means trouble. That means struggle. That means uncertainty. But in those times, we can look to Him and we can lean on Him and we can know that He will bring about His best for us. 
because that's the kind of father that we have. Jacob is going to be making that kind of decision. One in which he doesn't see the end. He doesn't know what the next steps are going to be, but he's going to have to make a decision. Am I going to stay here, take a little short vacation to visit my son Joseph and then come back to this land of promise? Or am I going to get up, take everything, and move to Egypt? We're not going to read the whole passage that we're going to cover this evening, but let me just begin by reading the first section. Genesis chapter 45, verses 16 through 28. We're going to go all the way till uh, towards the end of chapter 46 as far as our study, but um, I'm just going to read through verse 28. So let's begin reading. Chapter 45, verse 16. This is the Word of God. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts, and go to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, Do this, take the wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourself with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the journey. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is rule over all the land of Egypt. But, but he was stunned, for he did not believe them. And when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. As we've seen multiple times in the book of Genesis, we we will see here again in this passage that God shows favor to His people by reminding them about His promises. God shows favor to His people by remembering His promises. He remembers what He had promised to Jacob and his grandfather and his father. And, and he's not going to forget that. Now, we've taken a little bit of a break from looking at Jacob. We, besides a few times, we haven't really heard his name come up since chapter 37. This primarily has been focusing on Joseph. That's mainly what the last part of the book is. Chapter 37 through 50 is, is about Joseph. But the life of Joseph really highlights the life of Jacob. It is really the best of times for Jacob. It shows how God was keeping His promise to Jacob through His son Joseph. How He would provide or or preserve a remnant. Turn back to chapter 37 and I'll show you. Chapter 37, verse 1. Moses tells us what the remainder of the book is about. He has been saying these are the generations of starts with Adam and then Adam's sons and, and um, then Noah and 
Noah's sons, Abraham's father, Isaac, Jacob, here in verse 1, chapter 37. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. And these are the records of the generations of Jacob. And then he goes right into, Moses does, goes right into the story about Joseph and his life. His captivity in Egypt. His, uh, his being used of God to, to save the people of Israel, to preserve them. That's what I'm talking about when I say saved here. I'm talking about a preservation, not uh, spiritual salvation. But, but here in chapter 37, really, Jacob moves to the background, even though this section is mainly about him and his, and his descendants. But the focus will return back to him in chapter 48, when Jacob dies. Just before he dies, he passes on the blessing to Joseph's sons, you remember, and then um, gives this long exhortation or prayer for his children and grandchildren. The point of this, I think, is to show that God is still working to carry out His promises to His people. God hasn't forgotten Jacob. Jacob had a very troubling life. We'll see that next week. He had a very troubling life, uh, and much of that was brought upon himself by his own doing. But, but God has not forgotten him. God has not forgotten the promise that He had given to him. And so God shows favor to His people by remembering His promise. And in this passage, this passage is about Jacob. It's about God remembering Jacob. And we're going to see all the favor that is shown to Jacob throughout this, throughout this passage. Number one, Pharaoh shows favor to Jacob by sending for him. Chapter 45, verses 16 to 20. Pharaoh, when he hears the news that Jacob had been reunited with his brothers, says... Send for your father and bring him back here. I'm going to give him the best of the land, right? Now step back for a minute and think about this. Think about a pagan king giving favor to an obscure foreigner. And not just any foreigner, but a Hebrew. Turn to chapter 43, verse 42. Oh, sorry, 43:32. You'll be looking a long time for 42. All right, chapter 43, verse 32. Notice how much Egyptians despise or hate the Hebrews. So they served him, chapter 43, verse 32. So they served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because this is when Joseph, remember, um, had his brothers in for this big meal, but Joseph didn't eat with them because he didn't want to give away his disguise. He didn't want to give up his, his, um, his disguise. Notice, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the, Egypt, to the Egyptians. They don't even eat with the Hebrews. That is despicable. And so do you think this is any different with Pharaoh? And so he calls for a Hebrew father to come back to his land and live with him. Pharaoh does. A pagan king. And I tell you that this cannot happen. This could not happen apart from God's sovereign power and plan. His sovereign control even over the wicked people of the world. 
despite the fact that Egyptians loathe the Hebrews, he calls him to come and live with him, to live in his land. And verse 18 of chapter 45, Pharaoh promises the best of the land. He says to the brothers, he says to Joseph to tell his brothers, take your father and your household and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now that may not sound like a very good offer, uh, particularly since they are uh, two-sevenths of the way through a severe famine. But the best of the land uh, would actually still be producing something. It wasn't to the point where there was no production at all. There were probably there's probably a little bit of grass, particularly since they were so near the Nile River that there was some sort of. And remember what Jacob's brothers do for a living. Remember they're they're shepherds, and so they have to get their livestock out and they have to be able to eat. And so he says, "Bring them all here. I'm going to give you the best of what we have." For land, and those animals are going to survive. I'm going to make that happen. There's going to be plenty of resources. And if there's nothing coming up from the ground, we've got plenty stored up. So don't fear that. We're going to take care of all of your animals. We'll see this more next week. We get to the uh, chapter 47 and so on. So Pharaoh shows favor to Jacob. Then, number two, Joseph shows favor to Jacob by providing for him. Verses 21 to 28 of chapter 45. Joseph shows favor to Jacob by providing for him. He loads up his brothers, Joseph does, with plenty of goods to be taken to their father. So that when he comes back from the journey, he has plenty to eat. And he, he gives wagons to travel. This is, this is luxury here. Verse 21. And the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. And gave them provisions for the journey. So that they're given wagons to travel in. They're given all these provisions. Enough things to, be, to take care of them. Verse 22, a change of clothes. Right? All the brothers receive a change of clothes. And then to Benjamin specifically, Joseph gives 300 pieces of silver. Verse 22, and five changes of clothes. 300 pieces of silver is about seven and a half pounds of silver. So we're talking about at least $4,000 if we try to compare that to our day. And isn't it amazing how much God has prospered Joseph? He was sold for how much 20 years earlier? 20 shekels of silver. Just a few, few dollars, not a whole lot. And if the slave traders that bought him had any idea what God had in store, they could have sold him to Egypt for a lot more money because Joseph really Joseph really was worth all of the 20 shekels and a lot more. Now he's giving money that he has earned really from his position of leadership over Egypt, giving some of that back to Benjamin. And verse 23, he also gives them to give to their father 20 donkeys loaded with the best goods. And as he sends them away, verse 24, he encourages them to stay unified. Notice this, this command that he gives to them, or, or exhortation. He sent his brothers away, verse 24, and as they departed, he said to them, Don't fight. Don't be fighting. Now, now why would Joseph say something like this? Remember, Joseph is number 11 of 12, or, or at least somewhere down there. He, he may have had some of his... Uh, 
some of Rachel's or Leah's maids born after him. But whatever the case, he was one of the younger ones. And he's telling his older brothers primarily, don't fight on the way. Why do you suppose his brothers would fight on the way? I mean, they had now been relieved in a huge, in a huge way because why? They, they now know Joseph is alive. They have been vindicated. Joseph has treated them with favor. But what do they have to go do? Where are they headed? Back home to tell Dad that we lied. Remember how we brought that coat that was all torn up and bloody? Remember that, Dad? We actually didn't... Joseph actually wasn't killed. We sold him. And he's still alive. And so because they have this to do, what does that mean? That there's a huge temptation here for them to pass the blame to someone else. Well, if Reuben would have been around, it's his responsibility. He's the oldest. Okay? Or if Judah wouldn't have betrayed him, if he would have just waited a little bit longer, then Reuben's saying, you know, I could have come back and I would have saved him. That's why I put him in the pit, just to protect him for a little while. I have to go back and tell Dad the news. Dad, we have some good news and we have some bad news. What do you want to hear first? Let me hear the bad news. Let's start with the good news first, Dad. Right? I mean, how is he going to respond? He had been deceived for 22 years. And now for probably a couple more years, even though they knew, I didn't know Joseph was alive, but a couple more years now that, that Joseph had been there. And now it's time to own up to it. And the natural thing to do is pass blame. And Joseph wisely foresees this sort of potential argument, potential conflict, and he says, don't fight on the way. Notice Jacob's response when they arrive. Verse 26, initially he is stunned. Right? They say he's alive, but he was stunned. The word there in the English Standard Version reads numb. Jacob, Jacob was numb when he heard the news. Or in the King James Version, his heart fainted. So you get the idea of, of how shocked he was. This same word is used in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 4, and it's translated there as paralyzed. I mean, can you, can you picture it? And when Jacob hears the news, he's just staring out into space thinking, how can this possibly be? And they're saying, Dad, did you hear us? He's paralyzed. He's stunned. He's benumbed. That's how it's used in Psalm 38.8. He's feeble. He, he's, he's just complete, completely in utter shock. After the initial shock wore off, after a few days maybe, I'm not sure how long this took, but, but then he looked up and he saw someone who he didn't expect to see. Benjamin and Simeon. And when he saw both of those, and he saw, according to verse 20, uh, 27 and 28, he saw all the goods that were brought to take him back. The wagons, the 20 donkeys, full of goods to, to, to take him back. Then it says in verse 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Jacob believed 
that Joseph really is alive. And he recognizes that he probably doesn't have a lot of time. He doesn't have much time left to live. And so he wants to see and spend time with his favorite son, Joseph. And so he moves into action right away in verse 28. Look, at, look there with me. Verse 28, Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, Joseph, it appears, makes a quick decision, but I think it was a calculated decision and perhaps a decision that he already had made in his mind if something like this would come to place. Not that he anticipated that Joseph would be alive, but that God would take his people and move them out of the land for a time. And here's why I know that. Turn to chapter 15. I think all of the pieces of the puzzle come together for Jacob here when his brothers say, Joseph sent for you, Dad, to come back. Pharaoh sent for you to come back and to live in Egypt. And I think this promise to Abraham clicks in his mind. Now it makes sense what he was promising to my grandfather. Look at chapter 15, verse 13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete." See how this all comes into focus, I believe, for Jacob? That, that now God has revealed to him what is actually happening. Why? Because he had reflected on God's Word, God's promise that his people, Jacob and his descendants, some of Jacob's descendants apparently, were going to be living in a land that was not theirs, a foreign land, and they would be there for 400 years. But God couldn't bring them back to the land of promise yet. Why? Because the sin of the Amorite was not yet complete. So now turn back to chapter 45 because this, I think, is the basis for which Jacob acts. He doesn't just say, wow, I really love my son. I want to go to him. And we're going to see this as we move forward in the narrative in the next several chapters that his main concern is the land of promise. It's not necessarily his son because he believes God so much that there's going to be something special in this land that he doesn't want to be away from it. But the fact that he moves away from it shows his confidence in God's Word. I know God's doing something here. Look at verse 28. He moves to action. Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Pharaoh shows favor to Jacob by sending for him. Joseph shows favor to Jacob by sending the goods and uh, the resources for him to get back. And then chapter 46, verses 1 through 30. God shows favor to Jacob by reuniting him with his family. God shows favor to Jacob by reuniting him with his family. Jacob leaves from Hebron, where he was living, and travels to Beersheba. And this is about a 35-mile journey. 
I think I mentioned in a previous sermon that Jacob was likely living in Beersheba, but and um, and my understanding from that came from chapter 46, verse 1. But actually, if you go back to chapter 35, verse 27, you'll see that he was living in Hebron, probably where his father was living, and he's actually traveling to Beersheba. So, so I I was mistaken when I said that earlier. Um, so, so I believe he's living in Hebron and traveling down to Egypt. On the way down, he heads to he heads to Beersheba, this place where. His grandfather and his father had both worshipped God there at the altar. And Jacob takes this time after having made this decision to follow through on the promises that he understood about God, that it was okay for him to leave this land. Now what God does for him is He shows him His favor by assuring him that this is the right thing to do. Verses 1-4. through four. So Israel set out with all that he had. And he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Jacob's not going here to get reassurance from God, but God gives it to him. Jacob goes to offer sacrifices and praise to God as a symbol of his service to God in Beersheba. He confidently sets out for Goshen, holding nothing back, bringing all of his goods, all of his families. That's what Pharaoh asked for. All of your households, bring them back here. I'm going to give them the best of the land. And up until this point, In the decision-making process, God hadn't said a word. God left Jacob to make the decision on his own. God hadn't spoken to him audibly or given him any, uh, any clearer signs than what he has from the circumstances and the promises. But this reassurance from God at Beersheba, at the place of worship, must have been huge for him. Because Jacob knew that God's promise for the people of Israel was in the land of what would be Israel. In the land of what is now Canaan. He knew that's where the promise was. And that's why when God speaks to him, he says, you can go up. It's okay for you to go to Egypt. But I will bring you back again. Don't fear. And just as a small point of application, God is going to reassure you of your direction in life or about a specific decision that you make generally when you're worshiping Him. Is this the right thing for me to do, God? I don't know. I'm going to step out and I'm going to make this decision because I think this is in keeping with what you desire of me. And so you make the decision, and, and sometimes God doesn't tell us before, choose A, not B. Sometimes it's not explicitly clear, but, but often what He does is when we take and make that decision, He makes it clear to us then. He reassures us, not audibly through a dream like He does to Jacob, right? Notice how He reassures Jacob in these verses. Number, verse 3, I am God, the God of your fathers the God of your father. Okay? First, he reassures 
him with his presence. I am here, Jacob. I'm with you. And then he reassures him with his guidance. Don't be afraid, he says, to go down to Egypt. And then thirdly, he reassures Jacob with with a reminder of the faithfulness that God has to His promises. Notice at the end of verse 3, I will make you a great nation there. Not in the land of Canaan. You're not going to make us a great nation here. You're going to make us a great nation there. See, many of the great blessings that God gave to His people Israel were outside the land. Some of Jacob's greatest prosperity came outside of the land of Canaan, right? When he was up with his father-in-law Laban. It's where he got most of his wealth. And then finally God promises, he reminds or he reassures him with his promise of his return. I will bring you up again. And he's speaking in the singular here. When we use the word you, Y-O-U. We can mean you individually, right? You need to go clean your room, speaking of one person. Or we can be speaking of a whole group. You all need to clean the house, right? We can speak of it in the singular or the plural. That doesn't really come out in our text. What is God saying in verse 4? I will go down with you. Is He saying with you and all of your descendants to Egypt? Well, I think that's implied, but actually the singular you is used there. So He's saying specifically to Jacob, I will go down with you, Jacob. And I will bring you back up again. Now, it's true that He would bring up all of the people of Israel some, at some point, but, but He's speaking specifically to Jacob. And this is exactly what God does. Turn to chapter 50. Verse 12, Genesis chapter 50. Verse 12. Jacob dies. It's recorded in the first 11 verses. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them, which he told them, make sure you take me back to Canaan and bury me there. For his sons... Verse 13, carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. The only time that Jacob's immediate children and his grandchildren go back to the land of Canaan is right here, chapter 50, to bury Jacob. The only time. And so when God promises to bring him, Jacob, back to the land of Israel, he's not talking about his whole family specifically. I'm going to bring you all back. Many of them would not make it back. In fact, over a 400-year span, many of his descendants would never even step foot in the land of Canaan. So he's not talking about that. He's talking about Jacob, you specifically. I'm going to bring you back. And this is a great means of reassurance for Jacob that it's okay. The decision you made was a right one. I'm behind it. Does God ever reassure you when you are uncertain? God wants you to be assured of His sovereign care for you. 
God wants you to be assured of His sovereign care for you. So He, like a loving father, often does what He did to Jacob, but in a different way. He still reminds you of His presence. I am God. He still reminds you of His guidance. I am with you. This is the way you ought to go. He still reminds you of His faithfulness. He still reminds you of His fulfillment, His future fulfillment of these promises that He gives to you. This is how God reassures us. Have you seen it in your life? Now, He's not going to do it when you sacrifice animals to Him like Jacob did. How is He going to do it? He's going to do it through the Word. As you read it. As you hear it preached. As you hear it taught. As you hear its truth sung in song. I hope you were encouraged by the singing that we had tonight. The the words of the song. We don't pick out new songs or pick out any of the songs just because they got great great, uh, melodies. They got a great tune line. Really catchy. It's not why we pick the songs. We pick the songs because they are doctrinally rich. They are drawn from the Scriptures, the song that was played for our offertory. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. There's a reassurance for all of us that God is with us, right? And those types of things should be reminders to us. That's one of the ways that God, in an almost audible way, okay? I'm bordering here on... On, uh, on the sign gifts, right? Speaking in tongues and the miraculous gifts that are, people say are still going on today. But, but this is as close as it gets to God audibly saying to us, I'm with you. He does it through the truth of the song that comes from the clarity of the Word. And He also does it as you hear from other people and they remind you and encourage you about God's grace. Maybe in their lives or maybe they're reminding you of God's grace in your own life. Don't overlook this. Don't overlook God's loving, sovereign hand of care upon you that He wants to remind you and reassure you of His presence, His faithfulness, His guidance, His fulfillment of His promises. He's going to do it. Because He's never failed in any of His promises. The last part of the chapter focuses on, or the the passage, I should say, God's favor through Jacob's descendants, verses 5 through 27. In this section, we have a list of all of Jacob's descendants. Now, why do you suppose that Moses records this list? Why not just say, and all of his children and grandchildren came with him? Instead, he lists out each spouse, each child, each each grandson, each son, each grandson. Why, Why list them all out? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one, Jews were very much concerned about ancestral registries. That's why there's so many chronologies that are given throughout the the Pentateuch and even through the prophets and and historical books and things. They were concerned about these chronologies. We've already seen that several times in the book of Genesis. But I think another reason for this is that it, it may provide... Uh, some more background for the story of the Exodus. How many people came with Jacob when he originally came to Egypt? Okay, we're going to see. It's going to be... Uh, altogether, it's going to work out to about 70 men. But how many people are there that actually leave Egypt? 
the hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million people. It's hard to, to put a number on it, but over 400 years, the, the people become great. That's why God said to Abraham, I'm going to put them in a foreign land for a time, and they're going to become great there. And so you see there why the Pharaoh, the next Pharaoh that came along that didn't know Joseph, was so threatened by the people of Israel. Because there's too many in number. So they make them their slaves. They begin to oppress them. Don't want them to, to, to rise up against them. And so I think that's another reason why this chronology is here. Let's see how many people actually came to the land of Egypt when God, uh, when God first brought them there. But I think the main reason that this is listed, those are two options. Okay, One is chronology. Two is to show how great of a people God made them into. But three is because God wanted to show his favor on Jacob. He was showing the people of Israel God's favor through Jacob. In verses 5-7, through seven, they all travel in luxury. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. The limousines of the day, right? They took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him and his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. And now we have the list. Verses 8 through 27. And first, in verses 8 through 15, we have Leah. Remember, Jacob's first wife. Leah was listed with her sons. And you'll notice in verse 15 that there are 33 in all. See that at the end of verse, 33, uh, verse 15? All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. And then, verses 16 through 18, we have Leah's maid. Leah's maid, and she bore at the end of verse 18, how many? 16. Bore to Jacob these 16 persons, that is, sons and grandsons. That's what that's talking about. So we have 33 and 16. And then we have, in verses 19 through 22, Rachel and her sons. And according to these verses, Rachel has 14 descendants. Male descendants. Joseph and Benjamin and their sons. Verses 23 through 25, Rachel's maid and her sons. And there are seven in all. And then Moses records for us in verse 26, And all the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And then notice verse 27, And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were seventy. So, here's what we need to reconcile real quickly. I just wanted to show you how this works. Verse 27 says that there were seventy descendants of Jacob in all, not including the wives and the daughters. Seventy. But, in verse 26, it says only sixty-six persons at the end of verse 26 only 66 persons came with them. Now, this makes sense. Because if you were to actually look through the list, you would see that two of them died. You remember Ur and Onan, verse 12, who were evil in the sight of the Lord. Tamar's first two husbands. God killed them both. So they didn't make it to Egypt, did they? So that takes our number from 70 down to 68. And then two of the sons that are listed here are not... They didn't come from Canaan. 
They were born there. Who was that? Manasseh and Ephraim. Right? Jacob's two sons, or I'm sorry, Joseph's two sons were born in Egypt. So this makes sense. Seventy minus Ur and Onan who died. And, and then Manasseh and Ephraim who were born there. So that's where... That's where, how that's reconciled there in my understanding. There's some other views with regard to that, but I think the point is that you need a lot of people come with them. All right? And I think in, the, in, in, in what he's saying is that sooner or later, Joseph is included in this number, by the way, sooner or later, all of Jacob's family came to Egypt. Joseph came sooner. Everybody else came later. Two were added because... They were born there. And then we see God's favor on Jacob through this reunion. Verses 28-30. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph as they're getting close. That's the idea. To point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel as soon as he appeared before him. He fell on his neck. And he wept on his neck for a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. Then verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household were in the land of Canaan have come to me. Verse 30, Jacob says, Now I can die in peace. I've seen what I want to see. There's great joy. Let me just leave you with two applications of this passage in closing. God remembers His promises to His people and He reminds them of Him. Number one, we must remind ourselves about God's promises so that when it is time to act, we are ready. We must remind ourselves of God's promises so that when it is time to act, we are ready to act. Now, there are going to be times when we have to really contemplate a decision. But here it doesn't look like Jacob had to do a whole lot of that because he had already been reflecting on God's promises. So when the time came and the pieces of puzzle were all put together for him, it made sense and he just acted on it. He didn't wait a long time to reflect on that. Apparently, he had already been doing that. Because when he was told of the news of Joseph sending for him, he didn't pack up for a short period of time. I'm just going to take a two-week vacation, see Joseph, spend some time with him, gather some more food, and come back to the, the land of promise. No, he packed up everything. Why? Because he was confident that God was in it. Because he had been reflecting on God's promises. God's promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob specifically. And he knew that God was going to follow through. What kind of promises do we have from God? What promises should be at the center of our thought? What promises should we be thinking about constantly? Reminding ourselves of God's promises so that when some time comes, when we need to act, we need to make a choice, we're ready to do that. I'm sure you can think of, of several, but I'll just mention a few. One of the promises that we have is that Christ will return. Have you reflected on that? Do you, do you believe that? Are you looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing? Do you deeply desire it to, as we sing often, come quickly, Lord? Do we, 
Do we look forward to that day? Do we believe that's going to happen? Or do we just think, you know what, it didn't happen in Paul's day. It didn't happen in the days of Martin Luther. It didn't happen in the 20th century. It's not going to happen today. It's just going to be delayed a lot longer. Is Christ coming back or not? Okay, this is one thing we can reflect on. Secondly, just another idea. God will finish what He started in your salvation. God will finish what He started in your salvation. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you reflect on that? Are you constantly wavering? I don't know if He can really finish this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. All the way until the end. Are you confident of that? Reflect on these promises. These are great things to do. Number three, the triune God will always be with you, even in the darkest of times. The triune God will always be with you, even in the darkest of times. We have promises from each members of the Godhead. God the Father says, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never, what? Leave you nor forsake you. I never will. That's a promise He originally gave to Israel, but it's brought to us through the book of Hebrews as a reminder to us, this is not just about His people Israel. This is about us as well, Christians. The Son says this. So that's God the Father. God the Son says this. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Do you reflect on this? The Holy Spirit says, 1 Corinthians 6.19, You are the temple, the living God who is within you. Father, Son, and Spirit, I'm always with you. I'm not going to leave you. You feel like you're alone? You feel like you've been abandoned? And perhaps you haven't reflected recently on God's clear word that He is with us. That's one of the ways in which God reassures us of His presence, of His guidance. So let me give you a few practical ways to be reminded of God's promises. Number one, remind yourself of God's promises by meditating on His Word regularly. Take part in the disciplines of grace. That is, reading the Scriptures, praying, being involved in a local church. Be under the preaching of God's Word. Meditate on God's Word. Read it. Memorize it. Now, you may be tired of me saying this over and over again, but I will not stop reminding you of what you already know. Because I know myself, and if you're anything like me, you need a constant reminder. I need a constant reminder to stay in the Word. Because the surest way for you to understand and be confident in God's Leading His guiding is for you to know His Word personally, not to just depend on what your parents said or depend on what other people in the church said. Well, they believe it, and so I'm going to believe it too. That may be helpful for a short time, but that's not good in the long run, and it's not going to help you. You need to know God's promises for yourself, and you can't know them if you're not reflecting on them. Don't let them just wash over you. Reflect on them. Meditate on them. Think about them. What does this mean? What is, this, what is God saying to me? What is God saying to His church? second way we remind ourselves of God's promises is by reminding ourselves of God's promises before the cloud of uncertainty comes. This is Jacob. 
before the cloud of uncertainty comes, he's ready. He's already reflected on God's promises. There, there will be opportunities for us to, to doubt God, specifically when it comes to times of trial where we think, where's God in all of this? But I'm telling you now that if you prepare in advance, the best time to prepare for suffering is not when you step into it. The best time to prepare for it is long before when you're already reflecting on God's Word. And then thirdly, remind yourself of God's promises that have been fulfilled in your individual life. Has God fulfilled any promises? Think of specific ways when God was faithful to to you, when He revealed Himself to you. Think of specific times when God clearly spoke to you in your word in his word maybe you wrote down a note next to it or maybe you wrote down down a, a special verse a verse that was special to you on a note card and you reflected on that and you said you know what this this is the closest i'm going to get to god audibly speaking to me because i can sense his presence when i reflect on this word from him and this leads to, to our second point of application okay first is we need to remind ourselves about god's promises second in times of uncertainty, God's words, or you could say God's word, is more important than food. In times of uncertainty, God's word is more important than food. Dr. Mark Minnick once said that you can have a meaningful existence apart from food. Jesus did in the wilderness. You can have a meaningful existence apart from food, but you can't have a meaningful existence apart from God's Word, can you? Moses understood this. Deuteronomy 8.3 God humbled you in the wilderness so that you would know that man does not live by what? By bread alone. You can't live on bread alone. It's not enough for you to have food. But... By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, I humbled you in the wilderness. Why? So you would see that life is not about your necessities that you think you need, these food and clothing and shelter, but it's about my word, the words that come out of my mouth. Jesus understood this when he was being tempted by Satan. Satan said, take some of this bread and, and, and turn it into, or take some of the stone and turn it into a bread so you can satisfy yourself. And Jesus recognized, it's not God's timing. And he quoted from this verse, Deuteronomy 8.3, he says, You know, there's something more important than physical food here, Satan. There's something more important, and that is God's Word. And I'm not going to, to take this food at a wrong time. What I live for. There is food that I eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of my Father, he would say to his disciples later. The psalmist recognized this, that God's words are more important than food. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And what I'm telling you tonight is if you can understand this truth, that there is nothing, nothing more important than God's word, and if you believe that and you show that with how you live, There is nothing that will shake you. There is nothing that can, that can knock you off course if you believe and live that God's Word is the most important thing in all of life. 
Because the circumstances of life are all over the place, shifting back and forth, but not God's Word. It is a sure foundation. And when you put your confidence in it, you will be planted like a river of the wa- a, a tree by the river of water. It gives its fruit in its season. Psalm chapter 1. You'll be so stable spiritually that, that even in times of uncertainty, even in times of affliction, you will be able to stand up and grow. You'll be able to stay with the psalmist. Psalm 119.71 It was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn Your Word. Psalm 119.50 This is my comfort in my affliction, that Your Word has revived me. Psalm 119.92 If Your Word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. But because my feet were firmly planted on the Word of God, and that was more important to me than food, when the times of uncertainty came, I did not perish in my affliction, but I stood up. Nothing in all of life, nothing is more important than knowing, understanding, believing, and trusting in God's Word. Nothing. It will be the source of your strength during the best and the worst of times. Father, this certainly is easier said than done. Help me, I pray. Help each of us to trust in Your Word, even when it doesn't make sense and before it doesn't make sense. So that when we get to the place where it doesn't make sense, we're ready to act. Not according to whim, but like Jacob, according to Your promises. Having reflected on Your Word, we're ready to make a decision. And Lord, You know that I'm not advocating that we just simply rashly move throughout our lives independent of other people, not seeking wise counsel. It's not what I'm suggesting. May You shape the message that was given tonight. Make it effective, even if it came from, from insufficient words on my part. Thank You for Your Word how it instructs us and guides us and reminds us of Your presence. We're thankful that You're always with us. May we constantly be assured of that. So that in times of uncertainty, we can turn to You. And although we may not know the end from the beginning, we may not know why anything is happening to us now, we can be sure that You are with us and that You are guiding us. May we line up our desires with Yours, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.